we have an unvalidated continuous fetal heart rate monitoring technology that's been around for 50 years, and we still haven't validated that it actually does anything to improve outcomes. I, what I always say is, is um, the burden of proof lies in the one who wants to deviate from nature. I had to actually carry the studies around in order to, to support my notion that we don't need to intervene, which is, which is backwards from what it should be. We should be using data to support natural physiologic birth. And if there is some reason to deviate. We need to be very, very sure of that, but that's not what's happening. We're using, we're using medical publications in order to support our internal bias, which is publication and confirmation bias at its worst. It's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, unless you just step away and say, okay, you guys do your thing over there. I'm going to help support the midwifery care model over here. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. My name is Nathan Riley. I'm a, a fairly young physician, and um, I, I trained. Um, I started in the University of Pittsburgh. Got all my, you know, I was a Spanish major. Um, saw the world, did all that stuff, and then decided to go to med school. So I went to med school at Temple University, and then I found myself in California. My wife, um, I was about to say my wife at the time, my my still wife, wanted <laughs> to go to um, a place with beaches and, and palm trees, sunshine, because we're from Pittsburgh and it's a pretty dreary state. So. Uh, at least that half of the state is. And so we found ourselves in LA. I did my um, residency training. It's four hard years. And that was at Kaiser Permanente in Hollywood in Los Angeles. And um, uh, it's a great training program, very, very high risk population because a lot of people, they kind of end up at Kaiser because they're referred from all over the place. They end up there. Um, But of course we have Cedar sinai We've got UCLA. It's a massive city with a lot of stuff going on. So it was a very high volume training program. And then I actually did a fellowship at UC San Diego in hospice and palliative care, and then took those, the practice of holding space for death and applied it to my work in birth. And I found my magic niche, which is <laughs> to, to help women understand that they've got full responsibility and autonomy over how their body is treated and their baby is treated throughout pregnancy into the postpartum period. Did you learn any of that in med school? Did you see any examples of that in your training? Or how did you sort of come to see that that is the most important thing for a birthing woman? Well, when you see so many violations of a person's autonomy, it really makes you wonder, like, do I have say over anything that happens to me when I go into a hospital? You know, one story that I like to tell is there was a woman who it was like her seventh pregnancy. She showed up in triage, which is the sort of subunit of a labor and delivery suite. And she was there to be evaluated because she didn't feel as much baby movement. And while she was there, we were so busy and she just like was kind of tired of being there. She was like, I'm going to go to Burger King. I'm going to leave. She took all the monitors off and left. And the nurse looked at me like I was like, she would, this woman was insane. And I remember standing there by the doorway and just saying, bye. Um, Like the nerve of her. Yeah. Right. Like the nerve for her to take the monitors off and leave against medical advice. And it was like, if that if we see that as a violation of whatever hospital policy you've been married to, 
then what else could happen downstream, right? When you're actually having a baby. And, and then of course I was trained by CNMs at Kaiser in my intern year. And that kind of set me on this path of like, oh, we don't actually have to do much of anything. Yet then you get your second year, your third year, your fourth year. And early on, I realized, whoa, there is way too much intervention. The way that people are talking to one another, I wouldn't want to be talked to like that. I certainly wouldn't want my wife at the time we didn't have kids. I wouldn't want her to be spoken to like that. I wouldn't want as the partner to be treated that way. And so then there's this, this some degree of cognitive dissonance where you have to kind of wash those feelings away in order to survive this training only to then say, thanks, but no thanks, <laughs> and find yourself in a very, very different world, which is very niche. There aren't too many doctors that are you know, out there advocating for home birth or for, gosh, for just exercising your basic rights as a human. Um, and it's, it's because a lot of us, you know, 99% of us weren't trained to really see the whole person. And like I said, as a hospice and palliative care doctor, there is no um, you're not lacking metal, medical intervention when a person dies. And I started thinking, well, you're not lacking medical intervention when a baby is born. You know, pregnancy is not a disease. This is not a medical procedure. So I don't even want to call them patients. They're not patients. They're not sick. They're here for me to care for them, but I'm treating them like they're sick. And that just seemed backwards to me. So, you know, over the over four years of residency, my year of fellowship, I was working at Scripps and Sanita, seeing some very low-risk patients and just standing in the back of the room and giving them a salute when the baby comes out and saying, congratulations, maybe I, there's a couple of people I brought like a six pack of beer <laughs> afterwards. Cause the dad and I got to know each other so well during the, you know, the labor course or whatever. And, um, so you were I, drinking beer with the dad after the baby came out <laughs> Not in the that? hospital. No, no, but we, we would get onto like a pick about like, Oh, you know, finding some common ground. And they're like, Oh, you know, I can't wait to get a beer after this. And I'm like, what's your favorite? Like what type of beer do you drink? And I would bring champagne oh. or I bring beer or whatever, you know, like, yeah. and, and oftentimes they would crack it open and be toasting in the room. And the nurse is like, hey, can they do that? Like, yeah, they can do that. Like, you were emphasizing that it was really on their terms. Yeah. You know, that, that woman yeah. was like your Rosa Parks moment, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, she was the first one who just didn't obey. Yeah. She didn't follow the protocol. Right. Right. And then we have to be, we have to ask ourselves, why are we so confronted when a person doesn't follow a protocol? Like who says that this is like, what contract did they sign that says they have to follow everything I say? The contract that has the heading of ego at the top of it. And yeah. I think nothing else. I mean, I've had yeah. that thought so many times and I think it only can come down to ego. Why should anyone be personally bothered if someone doesn't like do what they say or follow yeah. their advice. It's yeah. just their ego and nothing else. It doesn't really have to do what's in the best interest in particular of someone, especially something like that leaving when she was in line to be seen, she has the right to leave. Why should that right. bother anybody? Right. right. It's also the system, the institution, the protocols, and them trying to keep everything in control. So, you know, if somebody takes off the monitors and leaves and goes get to get lunch, like who's oh, all of a sudden, oh my gosh, who's liable? Is yeah. it the nurse? Is it the doctor? What do we, how do we get her back in? We got to right. start the paperwork right. over. Right. It's all, it's all of that. There's this layer um, on layer of that onion. I, I totally agree. I, I want to also yeah. emphasize that, you know, for any woman out there who's listening and they're really genuinely sort of concerned about what's going to happen to me if I end up in the hospital and we want to blame the doctors, like you said, we want to blame the nursing staff. We want to blame the the hospital system, we want to blame the government, whatever. Remember that when doctors go into medicine, they've been incentivized and rewarded every step of their way of their 20 years of training, right? Starting with college to get the best 
answer on the test based on what the examiner expects them to say. Mm. So when you have been rewarded over and over again over the years for staying in the lines, it attracts a certain type of person who actually likes protocols. They like somebody above them to tell them how to do things. But then they're on the other side of it. So now they would expect, now that they're the ones calling the shots, they would expect everyone else to fall in line and do as they say. Right. That's what you're saying. It's attracting yeah. someone of that mindset. Right. And then they get their, they get the ultimate reward, which is to be on the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you heard a doctor say, you came to me for help? Why wouldn't you want me to do this X, Y, or Z thing? Because I don't want that. And they're like, but, but that's what we do. You know, well, so or I've been doing this a long time. Yeah. Or do you yeah. not think I know what I'm doing? I mean, sometimes they wear right. that on their sleeve, right. but they're insecure or they have that, that ego. That's they very came insightful. In with pain. interesting. Yeah. They came in with pain and for them, it's painful to not have somebody actually telling them how to do it, whether it's ACOG, the CDC, some study that was just published in the green journal, whatever else, like, thank goodness, somebody's here to tell me what to do. And then when you actually parse out the data, which is what doctors should do, but we don't necessarily have the time or the will or even the skills to actually digest a study, um, they see the study as like, oh, great, I've got another guideline I can follow. Whereas for me, I'm very right brain thinker. I, I'm very deductive, like, well, wait a second, is this one study enough for us to be violating a woman's autonomy or telling them that you can't leave triage by ripping the, the, the monitors off? Of course not, because this is still a person that we're caring for. So it would be similar to like a person's dying at the end of life and they do not want the ventilator. But if we don't put the ventilator on them, we're going to die. Like, yeah, they've accepted that. Like, can we just align ourselves with them and stand shoulder to shoulder as opposed to head to head as if you're the captain of the ship? Because you're not. You're not the captain of the ship, period. That point about the um, right brain, left brain is so important because that is what med school does. And even midwifery school as a certified, as a, you know, certified nurse midwife nursing school, it's the same thing. It's all left brain. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, in, in nursing school, they really do try to bring in the other side, but I understand that feeling of like <clears> wanting <throat> to follow protocol. Show me, show me what ACNM says. And that's and what I will I'll do. do it better show than me what ACOG <laughs> says. And that's what I'll do yeah. because that's the safest. Yeah. And yeah. you know, that's, the truest and that's the best. But then going into becoming a home birth midwife, I had to, I had to let go of all that. I had to be able to like say, sure, that's what it says. But in this situation, in this moment with this woman, does that apply? Right. Yeah. And make my own decision. Nature rewards courage. And it takes a lot of courage to do what you did, Trisha. It takes a lot of courage to do what you do, Cynthia. It takes a lot of courage to have a baby and nature rewards that. So there are, that's why there aren't a lot of us that are talking like this because we are the minority because we have to have a lot of courage to do this and to say, thank you, ACOG. I appreciate the guidelines, but ultimately I'm the person in charge of, of empowering a woman in order to exercise her autonomy using the information I gave. And then it's my job to support you and not use coercive language. It's my job to give you the information and then support you and say, man, that's not what I would have done but that's on me. <laughs> this is your experience. And the whole idea of, of, you know, experience doesn't matter. It's not measurable. Yeah. That's exactly the point. That's why we only look at the, the measurable things, the metrics, the vital signs, infection rates, mortality. Like, is that all that birth is, is avoiding death or is it more than that? And I would of course argue as you guys would, that there's more to this than just blood loss and, and, uh, 
the premise of our whole podcast and then in our yeah. first episode is a healthy mom and baby isn't all that matters. That's Everyone exactly on earth agrees it's the most important thing that matters, but yeah. it seems the medical community draws the line there. Okay, well, you got your healthy baby. Be on with you now. Like, go get on yeah, with what, your yeah, life now. What are you now. so upset about? We, we did a great job. <laughs> it's the, it, it is the, it's the lowest denominator of what we must have. Right. And can we please aspire to more like in Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Like this is the broadest thing at the bottom we need. Can we please aspire towards something more than this? Yeah, we must. Dr. Stu, I'm sure you are familiar with Dr. Stu. He's in in your, you guys are good friends. I'm sure. (laughs) Oh, really? Tell him you're on with the down to birth ladies. Uh, Um, What he always says is in obstetrics, it's it's a baby in a bassinet. That's the only thing they're looking at is the baby live and well in the bassinet. The mother is almost outside of a postpartum hemorrhage. They're just like not even paying attention to her. Right. Right. I I wanted to make a comment about your reference to research and ACOG, the American college of obstetricians and gynecologists for any listeners Mm -hmm. who want to know what that stands for. And that's basically like the governing body who provides these these, these standards and guidelines that obstetricians are supposed to follow. Um, but what I think we forget, there's really, really two things. One, their guidelines are always changing and you know, you know, darn well, like 10, 20 years from now, the guidelines of today are going to be completely different. For example, like you can still see they're holding on desperately to amniotomy, but even in their very language, they're saying, well, studies really don't support this or show any benefits and it comes with risks, but they won't just come out and say, let's stop giving amniotomies in 99% of instances. In the seventies, they used to say once a C-section, always a C-section. Well, that's changed finally. And it only changes with us. It only changes with the women giving birth. It only changes with people saying, no, I'm not doing that. I saw a headline a couple of months ago I get so concerned when I see headlines, I'll tell you. And if the past couple of years hasn't taught us enough about mm. looking under the headlines at research, honestly, I, I think then it's a hopeless cause because there have been so many opportunities to look under the headlines and look at real data in the past couple of years. But there was a headline on, I don't know, it was like a mainstream parenting page that said, good news, um, epidurals really don't slow labor. And I was like, what, how on earth is that possible that everyone knows they slow labor? So, and then they had a doctor like, well, this is really good news because many women are reluctant to get an epidural because they don't want it to slow labor. So I found the tiny fine print that pointed to the research and I looked it up and I'll tell you, like these things are published in medical journals. And when you read the research, they excluded women Mm. who didn't use an epidural. They excluded women who had a natural birth. They only looked at women who had an epidural right up until they were pushing and they compared them to women who had an epidural during pushing. And the the headline was epidurals don't slow labor. You're only looking at a population of women who had hours of epidurals. It's so manipulative and how few people, even doctors, right? I mean, you can confirm this, are going to look beneath the headline. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of problems within within the medical publication industry. The first is there's a book by John Gerardini called, I think he's actually a, a JD, like a lawyer. And he um, he wrote a book called The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine. And part of the problem is that there's a lot of publication bias. You know, There's also a lot of pharmaceutical dollars that are in these, ma- these magazines, these journals. If you flip through, you're going to see 10 Pfizer ads, you're going to see 10 Bayer ads, whatever else. And all of these new meds are on big, giant, single page you know, ads. 
And so one problem is that these the, the journals are not going to publish something, even if it is extremely interesting, like, I don't know, home birth, home birth is better than hospital birth, whatever. Like, let's just take that headline. They're not necessarily going to be enticed to publish that because ACOG hasn't really fully put their 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 chips in, you know, supporting home birth, even for the, you know, quote, low risk. I don't even like the risk stratification, but you get my point. It may appear, right? But it's not going to be, it's going to be one article that's slipped somewhere in the back versus that the big headline articles that are about how useful hormonal contraception is or how how great it is that we can induce people at 39 weeks and not have to worry about anything. Just get that baby out. I mean, these are all the phrases that I I was I was raised with. And the studies just seem to to support the bias that I was enculturated with through my training. So people aren't truly curious about what's better or what's worse. They're just trying to publish for the sake of saying, look at what we were doing is right all along. And so the other aspect of that is I, what I always say is, is um, the burden of proof lies in the one who wants to deviate from nature. However, when I was in residency and I started realizing less intervention actually leads to better outcomes, patients love me. They want, to, they want me to be their doctor next time. And I'm a resident, so I can't really have that continuity necessarily. Plus, you know, with 80 people in the practice, you never know who's on call whenever you come in for your next birth. So, you know, so they're like mom and baby are, are, are thriving, not just merely surviving. And I had to carry around an accordion file that was about this thick of all of the data from mostly international journals that actually supported hands and knees bursts, sideline bursts, uh, not opening the waters, you know, artificially, not starting Pitocin right away, completely discarding the entire first stage of labor and trying to put it on some curve. You know, that's all data that's out there. And I had to actually carry the studies around in order to, to support my notion that we don't need to intervene, which is, which is backwards from what it should be. We should be using data to support natural physiologic birth. And if there is some reason to deviate, we need to be very, very sure of that. But that's not what's happening. We're using medical publications in order to support our internal bias, which is publication and confirmation bias at its worst. And unfortunately, natural birth doesn't require a lot of pharmaceuticals. Right. <laughs> <laughs> those pharmaceuticals have large one-page ads all throughout yeah. the Green Journal that you know support the need for induction and pitocin and cytotech for this or that or whatever it is. Right. They're you know those articles are going to get published more. Yeah. Causes a revenue problem. Right. Right. I mean, and not to mention a lot of these pharmaceuticals are almost by definition, they're totally synthetic. Otherwise they wouldn't really be, you wouldn't have to advertise them. I think that uh, you have to consider that, let's say that something were, let's say that a woman, you know, Hermine Hayes Klein's a good friend of mine. She does a lot of, you know, uh, uh, human rights in childbirth. We know, we know she's been on our podcast already a few times. Yeah. She's got a third episode coming out. Great. Yeah. She's amazing. And I've Mm -hmm. actually reviewed charts for her and helped her, you know, if it ever comes up that she needs an expert witness, since I'm a fellow of ACOG, she could call me to the stand, et cetera. And a, a vast majority of that is, oh, they added this code of fetal distress. And in retrospect, that justifies this, this, this they did that they did later. So really the way that we're taught to, to document, which is ridiculous. If you ask for a prenatal chart, it's going to be like 600 pages of nothing and maybe 10 pages that are actually useful. All of that documentation is in order to cover our butts in case 
whatever hospital is sued, even if it's a totally healthy mom, healthy baby, unmedicated birth, because they feel like I wasn't respected. My, I, I was held down and a vaginal exam was forced upon me or whatever else. They could say, oh, but there was fetal distress. That's why we had to do the vaginal exam. Not that that actually warrants a vaginal exam, might I add, but but then in court, it'd be like, why did you force this to happen if the baby wasn't in distress? It wasn't, di- it wasn't documented. So, so they document the- all like a big catch-all. They just yeah, cover right, themselves. Exactly. Just cover everything possible. And then we even have templates. And, and uh, Trisha, you probably you know this from the hospital. It's, it's like dot vaginal birth or something. And it brings up a whole template with everything that the insurance company is going to look for and everything that could possibly be litig- litigated against. So you'll see a full physical exam. Did they actually listen to heart and lungs? No. OBGYNs like forgot their stethoscope back in med school. So um, they didn't do that at part of the exam, but who says they didn't do it? It's in the, it's in the note. And if, and if you, if there was fetal distress and you didn't note it, and then the baby had, you know, some sort of hypoxic injury, which is very rare, but if it were to happen and you didn't note it, now you're screwed. So you just say whatever you need to say, not only to cover your butt, but also to justify whatever actions you took and the benefit of having those big, beautiful documented notes, which are full of fluff is that you can now hot bill at a higher reimbursement rate. So it's really, really tricky. And of course, all of that is related to the culture of your hospital and your practice as well. Like if you didn't note that thing and your colleagues, your boss or whatever takes over at 7am and you didn't document it, then that might also cause problems for you and your practice. So just jump in the current and go with the flow and do your thing and go home and try to get some rest. That's, that's really the goal. And by the way, that fetal distress could have just simply been because the mother was on her back and just needed to change positions and the baby was fine. Or you get, you did any of those interventions, yes. maybe it caused the fetal mm-hmm. distress, but. Or they may not have been fetal distress, which was kind of one of the points too, though. Right. Right. They could just say that. Right. Right. Uh, we have an unvalidated continuous fetal heart rate monitoring technology that's been around for 50 years and we still haven't validated that it actually does anything to improve outcomes. So we have to bear that in mind. But there are people like Barry Schifrin, who's a former MFM who will testify against OBs arguing that, yeah, there was definitely fetal distress based on this thing that I saw on the chart, on, on the, on the tracing and all that, like there was definitely some distress right there. So it's like, you're damned if you do, you damned, you're damned if you don't, unless you just step away and say, okay, you guys do your thing over there. I'm going to help support the midwifery care model over here. Let's come back to your original overarching topic of personal responsibility in birth, because I am convinced any of us who've worked closely with women for long enough, all come to this same conclusion that your birth outcome is so largely driven by the degree to which you are willing to take responsibility for your birth outcome. It was my takeaway after giving birth before I worked with a single woman. So can you talk about your own perspective on that and how you came to it and how you would talk about that? Because I'm convinced we're all saying the same thing. I just would love to hear your experience with that. Well, sort of through the same lens of how doctors are used to staying in the lines. I think most people in the general population see the hospital as a place of safety that is going to guarantee them a good outcome, right? Which is why many women are totally open to the interventions. Doctor, whatever you say, let's just do that thing. The problem that I, that I've been, that I've been facing is that when people come to me to, you know, because they want me to help back up their midwife for a breach or something like that at home, I've got one on, I'm on call for right now. Um, the problem with that is 
that if you're coming to me expecting me to save the day, I am not a hero, a healthcare hero. I am here to support you in this journey. And if, and if, if, if you can feel empowered to stand on your own two feet and make decisions for yourself, things are probably going to be okay, but good or bad, the outcome, it's important that you, when you get pregnant, realize that the responsibility is on you. It's resp- you're responsible for putting the good, right food into your body, for moving throughout the pregnancy, for doing all of those things to ensure the best possible outcome. And that's not always possible. Even you know, in the mammal world, there are sometimes bad outcomes. Sometimes babies will die. That's a part of life. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just be hands off and say, like, pray for the, you know, pray to the heavens. Although for some people that might actually be important to them. It's not my job to, to save you from the responsibility of what it means to have a baby any more than it is for me to say, Hey, you know, you're having a hard time with your kid. I better take that kid from you because you're having a hard time. That's not how it works. So we've, when we medicalize and pathologize pregnancy, we see it as something that can be controlled. And that's why in the hospital system, there's such this, such a low threshold to intervene because we are the captain of the ship. I must deliver this baby to safety and this woman to safety and healthy mom, healthy baby roll out, not really knowing what happened to themselves. And if you flip that over and look at home birth, a woman making decisions for herself, like that is the birth process. You're going through a transformation of spirit. And part of that is owning up to what's about to happen to you and having some people in the back background that might be able to jump in and facilitate some things once in a while when absolutely necessary, period. But a lot of people don't, you know, who go to the hospital don't see it that way. If you're hoping for a home birth and you want to work with me, for example, like this is a contract between me and you, and I will support you in exercising your sovereignty and your connection to mother earth and to the cosmos. And that's it. That's my role. And I fortunately have some skills where I can say, you know what, if your goals change, if your values change midway through and you become scared and you hit the brakes and we do have to transfer, that's okay too. But when you get pregnant and you're going to have a baby, this is on you. Nobody can save you from that. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. 
And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. So Nathan, how do you handle it when you know that a woman is making a choice that could potentially put herself and her baby at risk? Because I, in that role, see myself as the person who has the knowledge that and experience that she may not have. I feel responsible in that moment for helping her to make the right choice. Yeah. Well, this is a, I mean, Trisha, this is like the Gordian knot. How do you support a person in exercising their autonomy? without inadvertently empowering them to do something that is very likely going to lead to something that's not in line with their goals. So the scenario I can give everybody out there is you're, let's say you're having a hospital birth, you're on the monitor, right? This stupid thing that's strapped to your belly. And it shows that the baby's heart rate's dropping these decelerations. That's a sign of perhaps some changes in the baby's acid base status, fetal distress, as we call it. And the doctor runs in and says, oh my gosh, miss so-and-so, I'm really worried about your baby. I think we need to move to the operating room. And they say, yeah, why do you think that? And they explain, you know, here's the risks, here's the benefits of keeping going, whatever. And they say, you know, I, I appreciate that, but let me take 20 minutes to talk to my partner. And they're like, oh, let's make it 15 minutes, right? And they come back in in 15 minutes. And they're like, we got to get there. And they hand the guy the bunny, this, you know, her partner, that bunny suit. Um, they uh, start pulling things out of the wall and the patient says, no. Like, I don't want you to cut into my belly. Absolutely not under any circumstances will I let you cut into my belly, right? So she's exercising her autonomy and her right to refuse treatment. If that baby dies, we would say, this woman, I can't believe she let her baby die. Like, what a horrible person. The doctor feels like I didn't push hard enough. I didn't, I didn't, I should have forced her to, to do that or whatever else, right? Like whatever language, you know, ends up resolving either person's kind of finger pointing, you know, in that scenario, the woman has every right to refuse a C-section, even if her body, if baby dies, that's not something I would be comfortable with personally, if it was me and my wife, but that's also not my position. So that's the extreme example of that. 
I think that what I think that what we're missing in the conversation is that it's not me against them. It's that if you and I have good enough rapport and you know that I am standing back and holding space for you to make your own decisions and giving you information as it comes up. And then we have a new conversation. These new labs say something slightly different or man, your blood pressures are really high. I'm really getting concerned about how high they are. You're 210 over hundred. Here are the risks and, you know, stroke seizures and whatnot. Oh man, you've developed help syndrome. I'm really concerned about you having a home birth. Here's why they can still say no. But the reality is that if we have actually built a relationship and I haven't been sitting in the captain's seat the whole time, a hundred percent of the time, they're going to say, this guy really cares about me. And that recommendation is one that I'm going to listen to. And we're going to have a hospital birth. Now that doesn't happen very often in my past, but yeah, we have to build trust. We can't just walk in and say, you know, pull up our scrubs and with our big white coat to show that we're the authority figure and say, here's what we have to do based on the data. That doesn't, there's no trust there. They don't know who you are. In fact, you didn't even introduce yourself before you shoved your hand in her vagina last time. So maybe we should start there, build some relationship, treat this as a person, like it's your own wife, for example. And then let's maybe prepare ourselves for the possibility that that recommendation against what her intuition tells her could actually be exercised. And if not, it's still my job to do risks, benefits, alternatives, and using non-coercive language, and then to support you in that decision. And if I'm really desperately concerned about this, then I might say, I'm not comfortable attending your home birth. I think you need to find a different provider. And that's that. But it's not my job to say, you're stupid for having a wanting to have a home birth. How could you want to do that? Your baby's going to die using all that other language, which is coercion. I think the best advantage any home birth provider has or any doula has, or even childbirth educator has is we can be very selective about the couples we work with. And I think we must be. And I think rapport was the key word. And I would never want to be in a position working with pregnant women in a setting, even if it was aligned with my values in a setting where clients are coming in and I must work with them because you can feel if it's not going to be the right fit, you can't force a relationship. You do want to have a sense of trust and mutual respect. And I think women have to think when they're hiring, that's what they need to be looking for. And they can't just show up at, oh, well, this doctor was recommended. So I guess I'll just show up there and trust them. That's what we always say, like you're the hiring manager, hire well. Yeah. But for those of us working in the field, we can be selective about the people we work with. And what's the key thing we're looking for? That degree of personal responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here to support you. I'm not here to drive the car. (laughs) I think this is a really common problem with the midwifery model of care in the hospital and why many midwives are called midwives Midwives, because they don't have the opportunity to build that trusting relationship. They're seeing you know, so many people in one day, and they are oftentimes at a birth getting that woman they've never met before. They have no prior relationship with them. And they, and they want to come from that place of the midwifery model of care. That's how they were trained. That's their education. That's in their heart for most of them, but they don't have that relationship. They don't have that trust. So so they tend to lean more toward the management of the decision-making and fall back on hospital protocol and policy. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a lot of ways, people who attend home births, they get this on a deeper level that they're not here to be the captain of the ship. In fact, that's why you might actually choose to serve women in the home environment because it's on their terms. And you see some intrinsic value to them giving birth in a place where they feel safe and seen and that you're certainly not the captain of the ship in their home. Plus those policies and protocols don't follow you into the home. Yeah. I don't have a culture of people who are saying this is how we do things in the home. 
Um, if anything, it's the culture of the home that tells me here's how we do things in the home. So, um, and what and what a you know a, what a great uh, relief of the burden of responsibility for me. I don't have anybody telling me how I have to do it except for the person who I'm serving. Exactly. Like go figure. So there's a lot less of I need to follow the way the hospital does it or the culture of my practice or whatever else. There's a lot more like okay, I've got my skills. I brought it. They're in the car. They're hanging out here. How can I how can I help? How can I be here for you? I want you to sit in that room over there, and I don't want to ever see you until the baby comes out. Okay, you holler if you need anything in the meantime. <laughs>